Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 232 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Nicole Morris about how Emory Law School is teaching its students to be next-level lawyers. Today's podcast is brought to you by Podium, Ruby Receptionist, Text Expander, and Alert Communications. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support, so stay tuned, and we'll tell you more about them later on. So we were assigned to use this intro time to chat about law firm pricing and fees, but I want to talk about something adjacent. Yeah, I did a good job of that in my Lens episode for the same week, so we're good. Yeah, so I want to talk about something kind of adjacent-ish to that topic, which is last week you were invited to speak at the Minnesota State Bar Association annual convention on the topic of Minnesota's exploration of the limited license legal technician LLLT concept. And I'm super curious to hear how it went and how your message was received and how stuck lawyers in Minnesota are on this topic. It was weird. I was part of a panel and I normally just say no to panels anyway, because they kind of suck from a presenter experience and audience experience thing. But I said yes to this because our good friend Eric Cooperstein invited me to be on it. And I love Eric and I will say yes to him most of the time. So I did. And he wanted to talk about this initiative to bring legal technicians to Minnesota. And we had one of the lawyers who championed the program out in Washington state, and we had the judge in Minnesota who's been leading the charge on it. And we had talked about it in advance. And what I didn't anticipate was just the overt hostility of the audience to this idea. Because like I was brought on to be the devil's advocate, and I can't be because I think it's blindingly obvious that we should allow legal technicians and that we should have done it years ago. And that all of the time that we've been spending on debating it is a total waste because we should move on to other things that are actually going to have more impact. And it turns out that like I was way ahead of what people wanted to talk about, which was it feels bad to be told that somebody with half the training can do parts of your job and people are kind of stuck in a mindset of protectionist lawyering. It was a weird scene for me to be in because it felt so old school. I think, I mean, I one of the points that I don't want to get lost that I think is fascinating is the purpose of the panel was that the Minnesota State Supreme Court is actively pursuing opening this program up. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the purpose of this panel was essentially to advocate for LLLT. And you were invited as the con speaker. Which uh, I can't be. Which which lawyerist's (laughs) view is not con necessarily, but it also is not advocating for it. I think... At least my perspective is like, it's a perfectly valid thing, but it probably doesn't move the needle and therefore probably isn't worth our time and effort doing all this advocacy for right. it. Yeah, and I so in that frame. sense, I'm sort of con having the discussion, but I don't care about the program. I mean, that's the thing. I tried to frame this in, you know, like the number one problem is that people don't use the legal system when they have legal problems, right? Like, I don't remember what the number is from Rebecca Sandifer's work, but it was something like 80 some percent of people with a civil legal problem don't use court or lawyers. And then within that section of people, you have another group of people who don't get the help they need when they try to get it. 
And so, you know, in Washington, there's something like, I think there's a few dozen legal technicians. They're making no impact. The size of the problem is so, so much larger that actually hiring enough legal technicians to move the needle would be the largest jobs boom in the history of the state or the country. Right. I mean, especially in a context where even in Washington state where this program exists, there aren't very many of them. And most of them still work or many of them still work within law firms, essentially as heightened paralegals within a law firm who are allowed to have some different heightened client access, but it isn't as though most of these people are putting out their own shingle and competing against law firms yet. And so it has not even moved the needle in that context. Right. And the other members of the panel were on board with that. Basically, they're saying, yes, we need to do this. But it was clear in hearing from the audience that the audience at least was not there yet. (laughs) The audience still wants to talk about, I mean, unauthorized practices of law is as good as dead for me. It's clear to me that a real lawyer has nothing to fear from competition from non-lawyers. But it's also clear in that audience that a lot of people believe that unauthorized practice of law regulations are the thing that is protecting them from competition, which is weird to me, but okay. And then there's this idea that, you know, we're devaluing legal services and there's only one way to practice law. I mean, one of the Supreme Court justices said in an earlier panel, you know, like, this is not a business, it's a profession, and then smiled as the woman from 3M, the general counsel from 3M explained how a business addresses inclusion mm-hmm. <laughs> and mental health. But ah, so many, so many tired so, tropes. So yeah. in, in order to not go down too many rabbit holes here <laughs> and to sort of try to tie it to this week's topic of pricing and fees, I'm curious your thoughts specifically around how not just the topic of triple LTs, but the conversation with the panel and the audience around how the way lawyers price their services and this idea that unauthorized practice of law devalues a thing which has clear price and fee implications in its argument, how that all plays out with this topic. I mean, it's hard because, first of all, it starts from the premise that hourly billing is the norm and that that's how we talk about pricing and fees, which frustrates me because I don't think it's the only way we should be talking about it. You know, a piece of it is There are a lot of rabbit holes here, but before you can get away from talking about hourly billing, you have to be thinking about the way you do legal work in a slightly different way. And you also have to be thinking about problem solving in a different way and structuring your firms maybe in a different way. And you have to be willing to acknowledge that there is a business thing happening here and that you need to be strategic about it. And so I guess one of the ways that it overlaps with legal technicians is the idea is that legal technicians will be able to just charge less for the same work. I mean, fundamentally, that is what's going on here. And I think if you believe that the traditional law practice model is the way that legal work has to get done, it's not clear to me how they actually do that. No, I mean, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts a while ago, that the premise that uh, an LLLT, triple LT, can improve access to justice by having a lower hourly rate because they don't have to pay student loan debt or as many CLE credit hour costs or something, but they still have to do marketing and have an office and have malpractice insurance and have a website and potentially have a secretary or maybe even paralegals for their limited legal work. The cost structure of running that practice is only reduced in a couple of marginal ways where I don't bake my student loan costs into much of what I do Anyway, I just budget for that as part of the use of my income, not how I set my fees. Right. 
and therefore the distinctions between what a lawyer has to spend money on to run a successful small legal business and what a triple LT has to spend money on in order to run a small successful legal business are marginal at best. The data from Washington, or at least the ANIC data from Washington, because there are so few that it's hard to call it data, is that the legal technicians there are charging less than lawyers if you accept an hourly rate framework for thinking about this. I have a lot of questions about that <laughs> for the reasons you've just stated. Like, I don't, is that sustainable? Are these hobbyists, you know, is this like a side gig kind of a thing where you're just trying to bring in, I, I can't understand how anybody could build a viable business on billing by the hour at substantially lower rates, but. Yeah. And so before we hopped on the podcast, you mentioned that in that talk last week at the convention, a lawyer who was upset about the idea that his rates will suffer if he needs to help address access to justice. Yeah. And we've talked a little bit about how sliding scale practices can be profitable. And we've talked a lot about how subscription-based pricing or unbundled services or flat fees are all ways that you can potentially have greater access to client success without being tied to a particular and high hourly rate. But I'm curious how that conversation went last week and kind of where you're at. Yeah, maybe this is where you were trying to drag me in the beginning. But <laughs> yeah, so at some point, someone raised their hand and said, look, if you want to address this access to justice gap that you say exists, why not offer incentives to lawyers to lower their rates and go and do it? And that feels like just a fundamental misunderstanding to me about how markets work <laughs> and, and about what the various forces at work here are. Like, if you accept that roughly 80% of the legal need is going unmet, and go listen to my podcast with Rebecca Sandifer for why that is a totally bullshit wrong-headed number, and there's a lot more nuance there, but let's just take it as a big round number. You shouldn't need an invitation to go take advantage of that massive market. And if you think the only difference there is lowering your fees, then you're thinking about it wrong. There are plenty of people who need legal services and can pay. It's just that they can't pay or they don't want to pay, or they aren't interested in paying the way lawyers are currently packaging and selling their, their services. And there is so much opportunity there. But if you're stuck in a mindset of there is one way to practice law and one way to bill for it, you will never ever move out of that. And you'll continue competing with every other lawyer for the small slice of the pie that everyone's fighting over. And you're going to get really, really angry as the yeah. ground shifts under your feet because all of this stuff is happening. The anger about something that I just don't perceive as consequential is what frustrates me, but... <laughs> So that was a weird rant for this morning. It was a little bit of a weird rant, but uh, it actually does segue into our conversation with Nicole Morris, because at Emory, she is teaching what I really do think is kind of the next generation of lawyers who are going to be approaching law practice in a fundamentally different way. And I think it'd be eye-opening for everybody who, anybody who is interested in this or may have mixed feelings or negative feelings about the idea of legal technicians. Well, here's what's coming. And here's my conversation with Nicole right after my conversation with Tom Ball from Alert Communications. My name is Tom Ball. I'm the Director of Sales and Marketing at Alert Communications. Alert Communications is a 24-7 legal-only call center that deals with taking the calls and or responding to any type of lead, even web leads, for the law firm and for their legal marketing agencies. Very cool. Thanks for being with us today, Tom. So you wanted to talk about how to maximize your marketing strategy, and maybe you can tee that up by talking about the different elements of law firm business development. Yeah, well, what we find basically is when we talk to law firms is that they have a bucket of 
of money that they use for marketing. And what we end up going over with them all the time is just a strategy of business. And it doesn't really matter if you're a law firm or not, but there's three pieces. And the three pieces basically are is the product. And the product is the law firm, all their people, all the good things they're doing for their clients. Uh, the second piece is always effective marketing and their budgets that are associated. And the third piece for all businesses basically sells, but in the legal world, it's called intake. Mm-hmm. What we are seeing basically is that what marketing companies do, if they can't really dial in their intake and they're struggling with after hours, weekends, holidays, immediately responding to web leads, all the facets of optimizing intake, they just spend their way through it in marketing. And this is what the problem is. Are you saying law firms just try to get more and more people in to the intake and that's how they solve the problem of not turning people into clients. Well, what they do basically is they just spend to drive more leads. And even if they don't respond to the leads, they have more leads coming during the day versus being able to respond to all the leads all the time. All right. They just keep pouring money on the marketing budget. Now, why that's critical is that if you take the marketing and sales budget together, 100% of all that funds, only 10% of that money to 15% of that money is really spent on intake and actually responding adequately at all times. The rest of that money, 80 to 90% of that money is spent in marketing. So if you really optimize intake, it allows you to do a couple things. What it allows you basically to do is not just market during the day when you're at work at a law firm to have leads coming during that time, but now you can buy media and you can you spend your budgets on the shoulders and the night times and early mornings, the weekends and holidays, and you can outsource that to another intake center like what we do here and respond to those leads and you're spending less money on media. You're also responding to the leads and nothing gets missed. So when you think about what gets missed, well, law firms, even if they're staffed properly for intake, have weak times. And they're weak in the morning when people are showing up and getting coffee in the morning or associating. They're weak in the afternoon. They're weak at lunch. They're weak at nighttime. Mm -hmm. And they're weak on the weekends and holidays. Well, when you bring in an outsourced intake center like us to supplement them for overflow during all those times and at nighttime and on weekends, now you can market full blast. And you know that no lead is lost. And that's the critical thing. So tightening up the sales and marketing relationship within a law firm or the sales which is really called intake in a law firm, tightening that up to make sure no leads ever missed. You can live answer 24-7 and then being able to control your budget and marketing that way, making sure you don't miss leads. You generally end up spending less on marketing and entire overall budget to achieve what you have done in the past. Now, if you were going to really ramp up and scale marketing dollars and budgets and have this outsource, you can keep doing that and growing your firm without losing leads, not just to maintain where you're currently at. That makes sense. So you're converting as many of the potential clients who enter your intake funnel as making sure you're capturing and converting as many of them as possible. Now, when you spend more on marketing, you're going to get more bang for your buck. Exactly. In fact, not just us, but an MIT study was done about this. And they actually said that, you know, you only have five minutes to respond to leads these days. Hmm. And what happens after five minutes, if you don't like outbound call a web lead or somebody leaves a message and you don't have a call in five minutes, generally you've lost that lead. And why that's so important is, is that the fall off for access to those leads after five minutes falls by 10 times. That's the spinoff today. So you have to be able to communicate with people by text, by emails, by live answering calls, and making sure you outbound calls on web leads, all of that happens immediately. And if you're not staffed appropriately to do that, and you want to capture and grow more business for your law firm, which is obvious for all law firms, then you want to make sure you outsource properly and effectively to make sure you cover all of that. I assume this is most effective in, I mean, all law firms want to optimize their intake process, but I assume this is most effective when you're competing with other people. So like personal injury, family law, criminal defense, 
where people can easily submit a number of inquiries to a number of law firms. And then it's the first law firm that calls back that gets the intake. Yes. And that's what we're talking about here. And the shocking truth is this. Many, many law firms can endlessly pour money into marketing, but because they don't respond in an adequate time within the three to five minute window or even below that, they're actually technically marketing for other law firms. That's mm -hmm. where their budget's going. Sure. And if they tighten that up, now that marketing and those marketing budgets stay at home. But it all rests on intake and responding and having a team built out. And if you don't think it's affordable to build it out, then outsource it to somebody like Alert Communications, and we can actually help out to make sure you miss no leads and capture and respond to all of them with a customized intakes for the law firm. If you'd like to learn more about Alert Communications, visit alertcommunications.com slash lawyerist. That's alertcommunications.com slash lawyerist to learn more about optimizing and maximizing your intake. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Hello, my name is Nicole Morris, and I am the director of the TIGER program at Emory Law, and I'm also one of the members of the faculty as a professor in practice. Welcome to the podcast, Nicole. I guess I should, uh, maybe should is the wrong word. I like to preface this when I end up with my law school classmates on the podcast by saying that you and I went to law school together at the University of Minnesota and then sort of rediscovered each other a few months ago. Yeah, it was really serendipitous, but a happy moment to kind of rediscover you. You're on Twitter, very active um, on Twitter, <laughs> and the program, um, we just put a social media campaign together at the end of last year, so we went live in January, and we'll talk a little bit more about the program, but yeah, and, and trying to find more people focused on legal tech and new innovative business models for legal education, I was happy to retweet and comment on your tweet. So it was great to find you that way. Yeah, it was fun. I saw your thing and I was like, holy shit, Nicole Morris. <laughs> that was so fun. Happy And then we hung out at Tech Show and you and I and David Colarusso from Suffolk and professor and lawyer whose name I have unfortunately forgotten at this moment from Harvard, their Legal Innovation Institute, had a really great conversation during one of the breaks around what it means to be training law students to be the lawyers of the future. And that kind of segues into what you're doing at Emory. And so maybe you could start by talking about the TIGER program, and then I'm going to ask a ton of questions about it. Sure, sure. So for the audience, many folks probably have not heard about this program, so I'll just kind of start yeah. from the beginning with it. TIGER is an acronym, actually, and it stands for Technological Innovation Generating Economic Results. It's a really long title. The important point about it is it spells out TIGER, right? <laughs> yeah, the important part, right. So it's got the great short acronym that everybody can remember. So the TIGER program was actually started by a PhD economist from Georgia Tech. Hmm. And she had the idea to bring together graduate students in law, business, and some PhD science and engineering programs to look at ways to commercialize early stage research from universities. She wrote a grant for the program through NSF, and NSF funded the program for about six years, where it was a unique model of bringing together those three disciplines, which had not been done before. And to my knowledge, it's yeah. still not happening, um, where you have an MBA student, a JD student, 
and a PhD student working together in the classroom, in a course, in an academic setting, and their sole purpose is to look at some of the early stage technology from the universities and try to create a startup, essentially, but try to look and de-risk some of those issues, particularly on the business side in terms of developing a business plan, looking at value propositions, the operational strategy, so whether this would be sort of a sole business or would you build it to sort of license and sell it off as an M&A acquisition. So let me see if I get this right, because it, it sounds like there's a few things going on here. That The goal, the initial goal is to take the research being done at the university and figure out if there's money to be made there. And the way to do that is to let students run with it. And so it provides an opportunity for both business students and law students primarily to work on figuring out how to build a business and how to make it successful. So that's those are kind of a couple pieces of it is, is what it sounds like to me. That's correct. Yeah, that's, that's correct. Cool. So what kind of law students get to do this? So the program's open to all students. So we have two tracks mainly to identify kind of career goal interests from the students. Mm -hmm. So we have a patent track. So if you have a science or engineering background, if you're eligible to sit for the patent bar, we'll slide you into the patent track. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of be the lead on the team for all the intellectual property issues. And then we have a technology track, which will capture sort of all the other backgrounds. So if you just have an interest in technology, if you worked for a technology-focused company. I had a student who had a non-technical background. I forget his background. But he worked for a packaging company and actually was an inventor. Mm -hmm. And he was just very creative and artistic. I've had a theater major um, participate in the program. So they don't have to have a scientific background or anything. No, you don't. It's for students yeah. who yeah. at least are interested and interested enough in this model where they're working with non-JD students. So the team-based approach to experiential learning is really what's unique about this program as well. Um, and it has to be something that the student values. So in the process of getting into the program, I interview the students to make sure that it's a good fit, mm -hmm. you know, that they understand they're going to be working with other students, particularly students that are not in Emory Law. Law school's not a team sport, so for some students, <laughs> <Right. laughs> the experience is positive and rosy, and others, it's a little bumpy. Mm -hmm. But I think for their totality of their education and the skills that they're getting out of their legal program, it's, you know, it's a required skill. Because, you know, when you get into practice, unless you're a solo practitioner, it's, it's rare that you're in a room by yourself for 10 hours a day without having to interact with other humans. So I think it's helpful to them. So what does the program actually look like then for the law students? Like, is this once a week, once a day, occasionally through the semester? Like, what, what are they actually doing? So they register for it through the registrar of the course. It's a three-credit course. We meet once a week for three hours, and there's typically spillover work sort of like homework, outside classroom stuff, where they will meet with their team as they designate. So the teams are self-formed. The students, you know, figure out a good time within their collective schedule. And they have weekly assignments that they're responsible for in that first semester. At the end of the semester, they have what we call project deliverables. So the first semester, they have two reports that they have to deliver. There's a market and industry analysis report and then there's the intellectual property assessment report. So throughout the course, throughout the, the semester, we've got milestones and things that they have to get done. And then at the end of the semester, they have to turn in kind of like two big reports. 
And then the the final semester, so it's a fall spring kind of schedule. Mm-hmm. So in the spring, similar structure, meet once a week. There's fewer weekly assignments because at this point they have enough of the groundwork laid in terms of what their project is and what their competitive advantage is, what their IP assessment could look like, whether they're pursuing a patent, whether they're pursuing a trade secret, or they're focused on brand you know, recognition from a trademark perspective. Mm-hmm. Now they're really focused on what we call commercialization, which is what's your operational strategy? What's your go-to-market strategy? How are you actually going to present this to a consumer? And they do a ton of interviews with potential customers or stakeholders. You know, if it's a medical device, they'll interview someone who will be the end user and they'll also interview a physician Mm -hmm. and get a sense of, you know, if they're on the right track with the technology. And at the end of their capstone semester, they produce a commercialization report. So do they actually get to see the technology become a viable company ever? Not really, because it's only a one-year experience, maybe a two-year experience. If once at the end of one year, and we're looking at making some changes to that, and we can talk about that in terms of how the program has evolved. Mm -hmm. But at the end of one year, it's really like a go, no go kind of decision. So a lot of times the projects just kind of fizzle out, right? So it's like, wow, either the the research doesn't support the initial thesis statement, you know, we Mm -hmm. thought that this would show this kind of efficacy or that the, the device would do this for patients, but in talking to patients, they're like, that's not our biggest problem. Our biggest pain point is something else. So the, the team might pivot or it just may be the type of technology, given the existing solutions on the market, there's no real reason to go forward with something different and new because it might be more complex, more expensive, whatever. But if there's reason to continue with the sort of commercialization operational strategy, they will. And there are several projects that have actually gone on to become startups, to become companies that are sort of selling product on a marketplace. Very typically cool. what will happen, I don't there are a few but not very many. Typically they'll get acquired by oh. a bigger sort of bigger entity. Like it's handed off. Like we're we're proving the concept and now we're gonna hand it off by letting somebody else take it and run with it. Yeah, they'll get acquired by, you know, another bigger medical device company and they'll just add that to their product portfolio. Has the program been going on long enough for you to have an idea of who these lawyers, what they end up doing after law school and and does the program seem to be affecting their choices or their career prospects? That's a great question. That's actually my project for this summer. So the answer to that question is yes. There's enough data. The first sort of JD Uh, graduates came out in 2004. Mm -hmm. There's enough data to sort of support where are they now. Um, And we're looking at the sort of classes. We're at about 2009 now. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you anecdotally in terms of the people that continue to come back and are like guest lecturers or something in the program, there are two groups. I mean, this doesn't surprise you, right? So most of the JD students go to law firms, and sort of spend their career at one or two firms and become partners, and they're still doing that. Mm-hmm. A few have gone in-house and are doing that. A few have then opened their own practice, and they're solo practitioners. I actually was at an event last night, and there's a recent grad who is now a founder in a local distillery. Hmm. So sometimes people pivot 
completely different. That's interesting. I mean, part of me is kind of disappointed. Like, I understand that from the law school's perspective that like the number that 95% of Tiger graduates are employed at graduation is a great thing to tout. I'm actually really disappointed in that number because like big law is where innovation goes to die. And, you know, like there's a huge part of me that that I would rather see 95% of these graduates go to work at a startup or start their own. That feels like it might actually feel like a more successful metric to me. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not trying to shit on your program, but I. (laughs) No, no, no. Well, you know what I will say in terms of just dealing with the student body of students that come to Emory. So it attracts students who actually want to go in the traditional career trajectory route. Mm -hmm. So students that want to go to big law students that want to spend a career at an established law firm or company. And every once in a while, there are some unicorns where there's students who spend two years, three years at a law firm environment, and then they jump ship entirely and do something different. Unlike other schools where you might find more entrepreneurial-minded JD candidates, I don't have that pool of candidates to work from. So the metric, you know, is a nice one to tout. It feels good. My career services folks like it, you know, admissions, you know, they love it. But you're right. In terms of if you think of who and what will the, you know, lawyer of the future look like and need to look like, those conversations are just getting started now, right? So the your participation in our conference this year, the Innovation Conference on Artificial Intelligence, it was eye-opening for some of my Tiger students because they were like, wait a minute, so law firms will not, you know, they won't hire as many associates if, you know, if they don't need people to do doc review or the legal research in the same way. <laughs> and I was shocked by the question, but it just dawned on me that they're not thinking of it in terms of this paradigm shift the way you and I are. So mm-hmm. the more opportunities we sort of get to peel back the veil of, look here, this is coming. This is started. You really need to think about how and what you want to do with your law degree. So we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And then I want to talk more about what I think is probably the more interesting question to ask about any programs like this, or honestly, any new technology, which is kind of what is the vision for the future of law practice that you're building this program around? So we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back to talk about that. With Text Expander, you don't have to waste time retyping things you've already worded perfectly. Instead, just use gathered snippets of information using simple keyboard shortcuts or custom abbreviations. You can capture the important pieces of your emails, directions, messages, and data as snippets so you never have to retype them again. From correcting your personal typos and defining industry terms to whole email templates, reusing your info has never been faster and it works everywhere you type. Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, iPhone, and iPad, and now Chrome too. Listeners can get 20% off their first year by visiting textexpander.com podcast. How cool would it be to grow your practice in your preferred area of law without spending any time or money on business development? Now you can with ARAG. When you become a provider on ARAG's network, you'll consult with and represent clients on various legal issues from writing a will to dealing with traffic tickets, bankruptcy, or divorce. ARAG does the rest. They'll make it easy for clients to connect with you and even share client feedback so you can keep growing your business. Best of all, ARAG pays you directly and there are absolutely zero out-of-pocket fees to join the network. So what are you waiting for? Visit araglegal.com lawyerist. That's A-R-A-G legal.com lawyerist to learn more about the client growth opportunities in your area. Just enter your zip code and area of law to see the number of ARAG members near you. It all adds up to more potential clients and more opportunities to make money for your firm. Expand your client base right now. In fact, more than 90% of ARAG members say they are more likely to consult with an attorney when something comes up than if they didn't have legal insurance. Check it out at araglegal.com lawyerist. That's A-R-A-G legal.com lawyerist to get started. 
There's more to answering a phone call than just pronouncing your name correctly. And I think that's what sets Ruby apart from all the other receptionist services out there. I've been lucky enough to meet a lot of people who work at Ruby and from top to bottom, it's full of the kind of people you'd love to spend time with. I guess it's something in the coffee they serve. And after all, when someone calls your firm, that means they are going to be spending time with your receptionist. You may think you get to make a first impression when you pick up the phone, but that's not how it works. Maybe your receptionist is just on the call for a minute or two, but that's all it takes to form a first impression. So it's a good idea to make sure your receptionist is the kind of person you'd want your callers to spend time with. It could be the difference between a big case and a big fail. Don't worry, Ruby can handle pronouncing your name right. They'll also help you make a great first impression. And now Ruby can even help you connect with clients right on your website with 24-7 live online chat. You can find out more about Ruby receptionists and how to make a great first impression at callruby.com slash lawyerstpod. So we're back. And Nicole, before we broke off a few minutes ago, I teed up this idea that it would be interesting to explore the vision of the future of law practice that the Tiger program is based on. And before we dive in, one of the things I think is interesting about this is that so many law schools, it seems to me, are building their legal technology and law practice programs around sort of a sense of franticness. Like, you know, we need to give lawyers some legal tech skills And so we're going to teach them how to use practice management software. And I know that's not fair to all programs, but there is a whole lot of teaching tools, not teaching bigger skills and providing experiences. One of the things that I think is really interesting about Tiger is that it is throwing students into an experience where you're forcing students to think about entrepreneurship and startups and how technology can become, you know, marketable and not just solving legal problems, but solving actual business problems. And even if I'm a little disappointed that so many of them appear to be going into big law firms, um, I still think (laughs) that they're taking with them some really cool perspectives that change things. And so I'd like to hear from you, like, what do you think the legal market looks like in 10 or 15 years that your students will be practicing? And and how do you think Tiger's preparing them for that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And you touched on exactly what differentiates this program from either other new initiatives at other schools or, or things that people are chasing now. We're not teaching, you know, practice management tools for here's how LexisNexis looks next, right? Right. It's more, (laughs) here's how to develop a business plan. And here's what are, you know, the important components of a business plan that will make a business successful. And then here's how you support that, not only understanding what the plan should have. So if your client comes to you with some business idea or needing legal advice, you understand their underlying business better. But you understand really quickly what the primary legal issues are because Mm -hmm. you've seen it from your legal education and you go into your law practice wherever you go, kind of understanding that basic framework. So, you know, they get a a mini, and I will preface mini, but sort of a mini MBA training through the TIGER program because you see early stage, you know, it's like a product development cycle. You see things from the earliest stage and you try to go through all of those stages and gates and milestones to get to the outside where you're selling something that a consumer and market wants, right? Well, and I, I'd argue it's better than an MBA because an MBA doesn't teach you how to be an entrepreneur. It teaches you how to be a manager, which are diff- well, totally different point. things. <laughs> totally different things. That's so. so true. That's so true. Yeah. So, you know, they understand the idea of there's an unmet need in the marketplace right. and then you've got a solution to that. But it's it's bigger than just that because if your solution fails on execution – 
then it's still, it's not getting anywhere. When we were having that conversation at Tech Show, the fellow from Harvard was saying something that I think applies equally to the Suffolk program and to your program in different ways, which is the idea that what you're doing is you're adding to the lawyer's toolbox. Yeah. You're adding skills to the lawyer's toolbox. Like, Everyone can learn how to use practice management software. You're not actually adding a skill. You're just, you know, exposing people to a tool. The skill is a different way of thinking about problem solving and a different set of tools for solving those problems. Like the example he was giving was, you know, let's say, let's say your lawyer does go to a big firm. And, and I, I think I expressed my disappointment about that idea, but the reality is many Harvard graduates do. And he was saying, yeah, but like somebody who's been through our program sitting in that lawyer's chair, let's say they get a big document dump and they have a question they want to know the answer to. And the answer is buried in that data. Well, a lawyer who's been through a program where they understand and regular expressions and databases and document dumps in a new way can actually just ask that question of the data or of the document pile in a way that a more traditionally minded lawyer would go and engage an outside consultant before they even have an idea what the answer to the question might be. And that's just a pretty powerful thing. And I was like, holy shit, that's true. Those lawyers are just playing at a different level than a traditionally trained lawyer. And I think that it's going to be similarly true for solving business problems for Tiger graduates. No, that's exactly right. You know, they're in the classroom with the business student and with a PhD trained student. And there's just different questions that mm-hmm. those, you know, those folks have that the law students now exposed to and can participate in the conversations in a different way. So that multidisciplinary learning serendipitously also works well. And that's what is unique about this program for sure. One of the things I'd be curious about is, because I assume you're in, in the room for some of those conversations, especially when we were law students, I remember sort of having a, maybe this isn't broadly shared, but I think it is. I remember having this sort of smug attitude that like now I knew how to think about things and that that the way that we thought about things as law students was the right way and that everybody else just couldn't (laughs) seem to see things the way we did. And then it took years of sort of, no, 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 other people have valid questions and perspectives that we need to take into account. It's not all a law school exam problem. Do you see that playing out in those rooms where like the PhD students or the technology creators or owners have concerns and questions? And is it hard for the law students to get their heads around those questions at first? It is. At first, it's definitely hard. I'm blown away, and I think they are too, by how intuitively familiar some of the non-JD trained students are Mm. on just, you know, basic legal issues. So I think it's helpful to them to see and learn how to deal with questions that don't come you know, issue spotting, you know, IRAC or CRAC or whatever in that format, right? And, it, and it's not the law school, <laughs> you know, professor sitting up at the front of the room. What I also see, you know, most consumers or most, the public is generally skeptical of lawyers, right? So right. there's this also defend the profession <laughs> piece <laughs> to it that comes into play. And I think it's good that they have to sort of figure out How do we convince people that we're trustworthy, that we are not hiding good information, that we are not overcharging them for something? Now, what's unique about, and I think this is, you know, folds into the question about the future of legal practice, you know, before you needed a Westlaw or LexisNexis database to find case law. Yeah. You don't need that anymore. You can Google, you know, you can Google pretty much anything and get 
some decent legal information without having to go to law school. So I think the fact that information is more widely available means that there has to be some value that you add to the transaction that's different than what we used to say with our value add as as a lawyer or JD trained person. It strikes me, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it strikes me that you are in sort of a unique position on this and maybe it sort of brings home the two sides. You were an engineer before you went to law school. Yeah, that's right. And that also meant you were a later career law student. As you probably had, when I asked a moment ago about, you know, were you also kind of a smug law student? You probably weren't because you, <laughs> you had a much more mature perspective on it than I would have at the time. But um, <laughs> but I'm wondering, like, this program probably kind of brings together those two sides of your own career where, you know, patent law and being an engineer. And I bet it's kind of neat to see that play out where, you know, both of those things exist in you, but you're also teaching students how to bring those two things together. No, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I joked when I interviewed, I'm like, God, this program sounds perfect for me. <laughs> but <is>. yeah, I <laughs> mean, I understand the perspective of the PhD engineering candidate mm-hmm. in terms of what they're dealing with in graduate school and, and trying to convey this really technical, you know, thing to someone who's non-technical. And I understand the law student who's sitting there going, I didn't take thermodynamics. I'm not really sure what this equation, these variables mean. You know, you're going to have to bring it down way, way, way low to like a fifth grader Mm -hmm. understanding. But to translate highly complex things or information, that's a skill, right? And that's the sort of component built into the program, whether it's Look here, JD student, you know, your teammates didn't take contracts. They didn't take torts. You know, they don't understand all these theories that you're, you know, spewing out here. So you'll have to translate some of that. Or in this case, patent law, you know, they don't know the doctrine of equivalence. So you're going to have to explain what that means in terms of a lay person to get them to give you the information you need and vice versa. And then the business student, right? We learn a little bit, you know, with five forces and Porter and blah, and blah. But some of the other high-level business concepts that they have, they need to explain. So everyone has to bring some sort of commonality, find that you know least common denominator to take us back to fifth grade so we can all talk to one another. Right. And I suppose if I can extrapolate this into the profession itself, I think there's a lesson here for practicing lawyers where if your approach to practicing law is bring me your legal problems and I will solve them, that may not be as viable going forward, or at least not as viable as viewing yourself as a partner to your clients, a partner in solving their problems and their needs and and meeting their legal needs as part of the service that you provide. And you'll learn and improve along the way if you make yourself a partner in what you're doing rather than just being a, a subcontractor that answers legal problems. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think of it as you've got to be the trusted advisor, right? Yep. So, you know, you're talking through what their best solution is. It's not like the Flintstone kind of, you know, antiquated computer <laughs> where it's like I type in a question and you're spewing out a response. That's not how it works. I mean, frequently, and I'm sure you saw this when you were practicing, you get this weird question in email. Hey, can I do blah? And you're like, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you trying to do this? Right? There's uh-huh. no yes or no answer. So. I think I've talked about this with you, but I have been taking this concept of thinking like a lawyer and trying to turn it over in my head, like what that might mean now. Because, you know, the law schools teach students to think like a lawyer. 
And there's a lot about, and what you just said reminded me of this because when we always answer, it depends. And you know who else always does that is designers. Yeah. A designer answers, they, they approach every question with, I don't know how to answer that yet, but I know how to figure out how to answer it. And that's exactly what thinking like a lawyer is. And I, and it's exactly how engineers approach problems and scientists approach problems. There's a lot of commonality in here among people who are good at solving kinds of problems and how they go about it. And there's just a mismatch when lawyers get outside of answering legal problems. And so I've been trying to think through, like, how might we change the idea of thinking like a lawyer to just have a bigger toolkit in the things that we think like a lawyer about? I think we can do that. And I think programs like yours are, you know, on the leading edge of figuring out how we might do that for law students. So I totally agree. You know, I don't hear that as much anymore. I feel like that's almost a generational term mm-hmm. where that's true. the faculty of our sort of, you know, year, tenure, you know, we're at, we're, what are we at, 22 <laughs> years out of law school, something, something like that, that. right? <laughs> so that generation would say that to us a lot. I don't say that to my students mm-hmm. very often. I think what I challenge them to, so in my mind, thinking like a lawyer is more about you have a framework. It's it's very similar to design thinking, actually. Mm -hmm. And you should be able to hone in on your framework and any fact pattern can be thrown at you and you apply the framework. And that's how you solve the problem. And the the answer can be different each time because the framework uses the facts differently. But you should have a really good understanding of the framework. And that's what we're focused on building in, you know, the courses that you take in law school. Yep. It's more, it's problem solving and not even like a lawyer, just professional problem solving. (laughs) Correct. Correct. Nicole, thanks so much for talking with us about the Tiger program, about the future of law practice and law students. And it's been fun connecting with you on the podcast. Man, this has been awesome. I'm a fan of your work. So I appreciate (laughs) the opportunity to talk about this. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Mm-hmm.